Welcome to Books at Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. I'm Anna Hughes and my professional purpose is to help people love their work. You know, when I work with leaders and teams who, when we strip everything back, when we strip things bare, they are carrying anger. You know, they, they feel offended um, and they feel resentment towards each other. And often, you know, after exploring that, it comes from this legacy of very normalised rudeness and incivility, this lack of respect for each other. That's the voice of Steve Hargreaves, coach, facilitator, trainer, speaker and author of The Compassionate Leaders Playbook, How to Lead with Compassion and Ensure Your People Thrive. Before we get into the playbook, though, congratulations, Bex O'Malley, winner of Finding Calm, our last Books at Work book. Please keep that feedback coming and follow Books at Work on Instagram, and you'll also go into the draw for the latest book we feature. The Compassionate Leaders Playbook was recommended by one of our Books at Work community, and it's pure gold. Not only does it bring to life what compassionate leadership is, it makes the case for it and provides practical guides to diagnose where our strengths and work-ons might be to build a stronger leadership style. So let's start with the power of compassion. What is it? What is compassion? Well, it takes empathy and sympathy further. Compassion drives an even stronger desire and motivation to relieve, prevent and mitigate suffering. Compassion inspires and compels us to do something positive, practical, thoughtful and meaningful. Compassion drives us to improve people's circumstances. Research shows that compassion fuels competitive advantage, it generates resilience, improves well-being and retention. Empathy and compassion are also associated with ethical practice and leadership, which have also been found to improve employee performance. Compassion builds stronger, more positive and compassionate relationships, it reduces turnover and it supports a culture of diversity and inclusion. It impacts on how people think and how they feel, and that impacts on well-being, behaviour, engagement and productivity. So, to leading with compassion. Research done in 2020 aimed to understand the characteristics and actions of leaders who were positively impacting on people and consciously creating the conditions for people to thrive at work. That research, according to Steve, found that those people were enablers, not commanders. They understood the value of listening and working with their people to overcome challenges. They spent more time helping their people succeed. These leaders saw you. They had your back. They were present. They weren't afraid to challenge. They stretched and trusted you and they set clear direction. The research concluded that the new world of leadership has to be founded on personal relationships and individual well-being. And that's where compassionate leadership comes in. Compassionate leaders are courageous and they have a more inclusive approach to leadership with trust, honesty and empowerment at its core. We talked to Steve about the 360-degree compassionate leadership diagnostic in our conversation shortly. That's at the heart of this book. But to set that up, the playbook framework for compassionate leadership is made up of seven characteristics or qualities, and they are respect, fairness, integrity, attention, empathy, humility, and courage. And it's not all about putting everyone first. Compassionate leadership starts with self-compassion. 
We won't be able to get into all those characteristics in our conversation with Steve shortly, but we'll touch on some of them. So let's get Steve to pick up this thread of self-compassion to start with in our conversation with him. So we're welcoming to Books at Work, Steve Hargraves. Welcome, Steve. Hi, great to uh, great great to be here, Anna. Thanks very much. Right, so we always start with the same question. Where in the world are you and what's the view out your window today? Okay, well, I'm in the UK. I'm in the southwest um, of England in the UK on uh, the coast, um, which is lovely. And I'm looking out of my window and if I crane my neck just enough, I can see my chickens. So uh, my view is out of the gar- out into the garden with the chickens. So apologies to anybody if my chickens start getting a bit vocal. They tend to do that, but uh, that will be real life. We always love a little bit of sound effects on books at work. Um, so really want to focus on the diagnostic tool that you've got in the book. But before we get into that, um, you you talk about the importance of self compassion. Keen to understand why that is so high up and yeah why that's so high up in your compassionate leaders playbook yeah it absolutely is core to the model and the approach and i think because it's the core of compassionate leadership and i think it's the belief that a leader's focus on performance or goal attainment um, and of course service to others it shouldn't be achieved at the detriment of their own um, or anybody else's well-being so I work a lot with leaders who um, are so focused on service um, and giving their all to the cause um, that it's that idea of they burn bright, burn quickly and burn out. Um, and at the heart of compassionate leadership is leadership that's sustainable over the long term, not leadership that's constantly teetering on the edge of uh, burnout. Um, uh, and it's about leaders being able to ta- obtain balance between sort of optimal performance and optimal well-being so by placing self-compassion at the core um, it really recognizes the importance of the compassionate leader um, not feeling that they're being selfish and disloyal by looking after themselves but it's essential Um, and then we want them to be excellent role models so leaders set and reinforce the tone in the organization and we know that when leaders demonstrate self-compassion and show themselves self-care they kind of give permission for everybody else in the team and across the organisation to do the same. Um, and from my experience, and certainly from the research out there, you know, leaders are going to struggle to lead with compassion um, unless they show themselves some. So self-compassion for me is leaders showing themselves the same level of high regard that they show for others. Um, it's essential. We want leaders to give themselves every opportunity to stay well and to lead well, because those things are connected. So self-compassion is absolutely um, key to the model of compassionate leadership. And of course, it's it's key to really a happy, healthy and functioning life for all of us, I think. Sometimes easier said than done, though. Absolutely. Um, now, you've got a comment in the book that I, I liked um, in, in this first bit was about disrupting the echo. What did you mean by that? Yes, disrupting the echo. Um, so I think this is about leaders needing to be aware that Organisational cultures can become a bit of an echo chamber of sometimes the loudest um, and most prominent views, ideas and beliefs. Um, And sometimes either because the the culture isn't that safe or just because, you know, maybe leaders and colleagues have stopped listening. um, Other ideas, perspectives and even dissenting views and challenges um, are quashed or suppressed. I think sometimes intentionally, sometimes inadvertently. 
Um, but that can lead to certain views and ways of working um, and habits, um, even if they're sort of divisive and unhealthy, becoming the norm. Um, and for, uh, for example, presenteeism. Um, if an organisation and its leadership always reward and always on, always working, always busy, always doing, always available culture, then it risks becoming normalised, no matter how damaging it might be. So, so, so for me, disrupting the echo, and I write about this, is in these circumstances, leaders considering to disrupt that echo and to check out whether the prevailing views um, and ideas and perspectives in the organisation are serving everyone in the business well, and to have the courage to speak up if they're doing damage. So I suppose this is leaders noticing what's going on around them and ensuring the organisation takes responsibility for when it's causing or perpetuating suffering. So leadership is bold in, in saying what needs to be said when it needs to be said. Does that make sense, Anna? <laughs> it certainly does. And I can think of a number of examples where um, workplaces I've worked in that echo needed to be disrupted. So uh, thank you, thank you for giving us that context. Right, so let's get into the diagnostic. So there's, you know, the, the heart of the book is about the diagnostic. So we'll try and do it justice as we uh, <laughs> as we zoom through. Um, so there are seven qualities in here that you believe amplify leading with compassion. And I'd like to touch on each of them. We may not get to the detail, um, but that's okay. People can buy the book and um, and read it themselves. Um, yep. So how do you go about doing a self-diagnostic like yeah. this? Yeah, it's a great question because, of course, that's, that's so key to the centre of the book, really. So I really wanted to get under the skin of what it's like to lead with enhanced compassion and to provide readers with some practical tools and resources that enable them to build self-awareness and identify their own strengths as well as any areas they think might need some development. Um, so I developed this 360 degrees of compassion, self-diagnostic, to enable people to undertake a self-guided reflection. Um, I mean, some people I know have done it in groups, um, and that's been fantastic to hear. Um, but you can do go through it individually. So it's a series of short self-assessment exercises, which are undertaken at the beginning of each chapter, and then explored in greater depth as you go through the book. So let's get into the characteristics or qualities that you've got in the book uh, that are um, synonymous with leading with compassion. And the first one's attention. So paying attention, noticing judgments, decisions and choices. First of all, why does attention matter? And can you give us an example of, of how we do this or how to do this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is about noticing um, how we're showing up as leaders and what's driving that. You know, what's, what's, what, what is it leading to? So I think this is about a high degree of self-awareness um, and leaders being really intentional in paying attention to what we're paying attention to. Um, and I don't know about you, whenever I feel completely overwhelmed or like I've just got too much to do, uh, the place I centre back to is what am I paying attention to? What am I giving my time to? Um, and it's my starting point as a, for reflection, really, to see whether I can begin to clear clear some space and room. So the reason it's so important is that if we don't pay attention and notice what is driving our judgments and our decisions and our choices and how we are spending our time and of course whom we're paying attention to, I mean how are we going to identify what's working well and to do more of it and not working well? So I think paying attention is really important. You know, we want to um, be able to identify you know, what is blocking our progress and our performance and our productivity 
Um, and I often use this term interference and I use it quite purposefully. Um, and I regard the key job of leadership to identify interferences. And by that, I mean the kind of stuff that's getting in the way and blocking either the leader or the team's potential being, I don't know, optimised. So I call the leader um, in these instances becoming the unblocker in chief. Now, I don't know if that's a term that a leader would like assigned to them, but that's the term I use. So leadership is about you know, unblocking, being the unblocker in chief. And that's how they can bring real value to their role. So I think a great way of doing that, uh, either individually or as a team, is to spend some time identifying all the things that are interfering and getting in the way of people thriving, being productive and creating value. Um, and after that, the next step is to categorize each item, each one of those interferences into, into three areas, into self, the interference is caused by me, because of course we can be the source of great levels of interference, can't we? Um, the second one is interference caused by other people. You know, when are other people getting in our way? Um, and thirdly is to categorize um, um, environmental, Interference is caused by the system or the culture um, that I work within. So once we've identified interferences, once we've categorised them into those three areas, we can then look at, by looking at all of those, what are the things we can control? What are the things we can influence and those that we can't? And then the last step is to focus on the areas we can control and then start identifying some actions on how we can minimise those interferences. And you'll be amazed just how much can be minimised. So that's an example for me of when we pay attention. Um, so fundamental to this is leaders paying attention to their own relationships with their interferences um, and to examine where they are the source um, or perpetuator of interferences. Um, and if leaders do that, everybody will be really grateful that they did. So paying attention, I think this is about identifying how we're showing up, why, what it's leading to, um, um, and being intentional about reducing interferences. So I love the I love the way that you've described that because it's all very well to pay attention, but if you're not critically kind of analysing that, nothing's going to change. So I love I love how you've explained what what people can do. Um, so the next quality is humility. Keen to hear how you define humility and what are some of the attributes. And also, you know, I'm a big believer in feedback. So you talk yeah. about feedback in the book. So could you cover all that off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll certainly try. Um, so for me, humility is the is when leaders uh, demonstrate genuine gratitude, a lack of arrogance, and and it's rooted in us having a positive but modest view of ourselves. And it takes real courage to lead with humility because we have to acknowledge our flaws and imperfections, triggers, um, ego. Um, as we as we work with humility, those things become clearer to us. We get to know ourselves, I suppose, warts and all. And that can really help us to have increased empathy and understanding of those same characteristics in other people, which can lead us to treat ourselves and others with greater compassion. It's about seeing people more as like us, that we are all flawed and imperfect and generally trying to do the best that we can. And that shift in perspective can be really powerful. So... So some of the characteristics of the humble leader are that they know that it's okay not to know everything, you know, to not always know the answer, um, to acknowledge when they get it wrong, uh, to apologise when they need to, um, to seek out other people's expertise um, and knowledge, and to value learning and continual improvement. Um, and also to be ambitious. You know, ambition is not a dirty word, but I think 
within the context of humility, it's thinking about what are we ambitious for? Is it um, personal success at any cost or is it wider team success? So I think humility requires us to kind of um, take a good hard look at ourselves, but but also remembering self-compassion, Anna. We are, yep. we are being kind to ourselves along the way. But it is about leaders recognising that the le- that the, the ego can be a really powerful force for good, but it needs regulating um, 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 as well. Um, and to create a safe environment where people care enough about each other and the leader to feedback with candour mm. and care. And I talk about feedback in the sense of, you know, feedback is really important and speaking with candor is really important but we also need to do that with with um with care so i think around um feedback um how can a how can a leader learn improve and develop if no one lets the leader know how they're doing you know how on earth will they get to know so i think leadership needs to pay attention to how it creates an environment where people feel inclined to speak up and, and and feedback you know with care with candor and with care. Mm, yeah, I love the candor and care. Thank you. Uh, so the next one is fairness. And this is about how to manage making judgments and how to combat the negative parts of that. Yeah, so I think this is about leaders understanding how their personal opinions, biases and preferences can influence their judgments and decisions. So it's normal to have these, but they can lead us to have blind spots and to make decisions that are unfair. And the impact of unfairness can be significant. Um, I don't know about you, but I think I've been on the, when I've been on the receiving end of unfairness, uh, I can feel cheated, I can feel threatened, I can feel singled out, I might feel vulnerable, uh, my fight or flight might kick in. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfairness certainly impacts on performance levels because it erodes trust. Um, so if I don't trust you to do right by me, um, I might be inclined to engage less. I might be inclined to um, be a bit more protective and a bit more defensive, and it damages relationships. And when our biases lead us to treat people or groups unfairly, those people tend to tell other people about it. Mm, you know, mm. and we know that when people witness unfair um, treatment towards others, they don't even have to be treated unfairly themselves. The impact of witnessing it and observing it happening to others is really significant. Um, and gets them they can experience the same feelings of being treated unfairly themselves so I think if we think about compassion as being you know um, when we take a compassionate act we want to alleviate and relieve suffering in others so if if unfairness can cause suffering the compassionate leader wants to ensure that they don't perpetuate and cause suffering so they need to be aware of it and we can take steps to mitigate bias because that's part of demonstrating care for each other you know if we acknowledge the fact that bias exists, we can pay attention to it. You know, we can, uh, there's a term um, called constructive self-doubt. Um, and I think it's really important for all of us to have a healthy sense of self-doubt, not so that it paralyzes us, so we don't, that's not healthy, but constructive self-doubt that, that, that means that we question our decision or our judgments and go, what led to me making that decision? Um, so we question um, ourselves, uh, not to paralyze us, but to in, but to just check out what's what's driving my decision, what's driving my judgment in this situation. You mentioned constructive self doubt there. Um, keen to kind of understand that a bit more. How how on earth can you have constructive self doubt? How do you grow that? How do you build that? The constructive yeah, and bit. Some, <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah, that's the point, isn't it? And it's sometimes called constructive uncertainty, right? Um, as well. So I think this is. I mean, I'm really keen on exploring this idea of leadership habits 
mm-hmm. um, and habits, you know, understanding what our habits are. And sometimes when we need to unlearn some habits and learn new ones, and that's really, really difficult um, to do. But I think constructive uncertainty or constructive self-doubt can be a habit we can develop, but we can see it in the context of not worrying that, my goodness, I'm wrong, or this is, a, I'm making a terrible decision, or, you know, I've got to, I've got to constructively self-doubt and I'll never get to make a decision if I do. It's about taking a step taking a breath and going, I'm about to make a judgment or I'm going to make a decision or I'm going to um, articulate a particular point of view. Um, And this decision is going to impact potentially on other people. Um, So I recognise in myself, it's likely that I've got biases. They might be conscious ones, they might be unconscious ones, but they are at play here and they they are driving to some extent, you know, largely or not so much so this decision or judgment that I'm making. So if I can get to the habit of just pausing and going, okay, in this decision I'm about to make, have I got enough information? Have I sought out other people's ideas and perspectives? Have I just checked out whether my, you know, my approach, which is very definite and firm, we're definitely going to make a decision and move forward. Have I checked out that that's informed in as full a way as it needs to be? And this isn't to create sort of decision paralysis, but it is to say, actually, let me just ensure that, you know, it's that kind of, you know, good housekeeping. Yeah. Have I ensured that this is a well-informed decision, not just based on my inherent biases and opinions? Mm. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. Put a pause point in and just check that out. So the next one that I just want to talk about is respect. And you've got this focus on rudeness and incivility. So for me, you know, respect is big and you know it's obviously it's one of my values and so when I read this about rudeness and incivility I really liked the focus on that it was a little bit different um so yeah interested to know why you've chosen those things uh to focus on uh in the book um well I think because I've seen firsthand the damaging effects of of rudeness um, particularly when it's embedded in the culture of, you know, this is the way we get things done. Yeah. Um, and I know it's, you know, we know it's the found, it can be a foundation to a toxic culture. You know, and I work with leaders and teams who, when we strip everything back, when we strip things bare, they are carrying anger. You know, they, they feel offended um, and they feel resentment towards each other. And often, you know, after exploring that, it comes from this legacy of very normalised rudeness and incivility, this lack of respect for each other whether they disguise it as passion, that's another word I have all sorts of issues with, Anna, passion, <laughs> um, or banter. It could be really damaging for lots of people. And, and, and you know, we, there's huge amounts of research undertaken and, and Harvard did a fantastic study around rudeness. You know, rudeness feels personal and it, and it disrupts our cognitive functioning. And by that, I mean um, our ability to learn, to think, to reason, to remember, to solve problems, to make decisions, um, and our focus is disrupted when we're on the receiving end of rude, impolite, discourteous and offensive behaviour, or when we're witnessing it happening, you know, towards other people. It doesn't even have to be um, um, at us. Um, so the research was that when we, uh, when we are part of a culture where rudeness is the way of getting things done, you know, empathy declines, um, and we're less likely to demonstrate goodwill, helpfulness and cooperation when rudeness and instability is a characteristic. I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if I'm on the constant receiving end of, you know, banter and all of that, it gets quite personal. 
you know, am I likely to be putting my best self forward? Am I, am I more likely to be engaged, you know, to feel included, to feel like it's safe for me to express my views and ideas? Um, and rudeness is contagious. You know, the Harvard study found that when employees experience rudeness, they decrease their work effort and intentionally spend less time at work. 38% of those people involved in the study decreased the quality of their work. 25% admitted taking their frustrations out on customers and 12% left their job. You know, rudeness really matters. Um, and worryingly, the research is also saying that levels of rudeness and incivility are getting worse, not better. Um, so I've, it's an area that I'll use that word, I don't like, I get very passionate <laughs> because I see the effects of it, um, particularly over time. Um, and I'm not one for the it's banter. We all just need to toughen up, don't we? Yeah, you know, yeah. I've worked in some really high pressure environments where rudeness has been part of it. And I've seen the effects. And I've worked in some of those same high pressure environments where respect and civility are there even when times are tough. And I, and I know which one I'd offer. So thank you, Steve. We've actually run out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so very much. Uh, I know that our Books at Work community are going to really enjoy our conversation. So thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. On to the Compassionate Leader Playbook, Take 5. 1. Compassionate leadership is a style of leadership for today and the future. 2. Start with self-compassion. Three, disrupt the echoes in your workplace that are creating the wrong culture. Four, test yourself against the framework for compassionate leadership. Respect, integrity, attention, humility, empathy, fairness, courage. And five, rudeness and incivility in the workplace decreases work effort and quality and it increases turnover. That's the Books at Work Compassionate Leaders Playbook episode done and dusted. Please send me feedback or follow Books at Work on Instagram. I'm Anna Hughes and that's Books at Work, making work better.